Hey bosses, this week's episode is brought to you by Global Pass, the global co-working membership that gives you access to working spaces in more than 600 cities around the world. We'll tell you more about them during the break. Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, where we interview location-independent entrepreneurs that travel the world like a boss by being their own boss. Here's your host, Johnny FD. Hey bosses, and welcome to episode 241 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I'm sitting here in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where it all began with Nate Ginsburg. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Johnny. Glad to be here. Dude, it really did start here, huh? It did, yeah. Uh, I know we were kind of chatting about it a little bit uh, as we were getting set up, but what I was say, I think I remember, like, actually was there at the genesis of this podcast at uh, one of the uh, Paleo Power Breakfasts that were going. And if, if I remember right, like, someone mentioned or kind of podcasts were, like, the hot thing or people were all talking about starting them. And this was, what, in 2013? Teen? Yeah, I think it was 2013. Yeah, and it was, um, I think like at one of the breakfasts, you know, someone mentioned podcast and I think you might have just said something like, oh yeah, podcast, like good idea. And then all of a sudden I remember it was like literally like the next day or one or two more that you just like had, you know, got the site up, uh, had recorded an episode, um, you know, had some cover art designed and it was just uh, bam. And I guess uh, he, here we are uh, six years later, uh, more. <laughs> yeah, 241 episodes later. It's crazy. Yeah, it's uh, crazy. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure to uh, see it at the beginning and then now uh, get get to be a part of it 240 episodes in. Yeah, so we actually met at the Paleo Breakfast, which was just like a couple of nomads' like house here in Neiman. Mm-hmm. And they were all part of the DC, and it was kind of just like a casual gathering. Like they had a housekeeper, anyways, that they're paying like seven hundred bucks a month or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember for me, it was really, uh, maybe if you know, for both of us, like really positive and impactful. I mean, uh, for me as someone who's just just came to Asia, was new, you know, trying to meet people, uh, trying to get involved with the scene, to have that that as like a regular weekly thing just to meet up and meet people like you, for example, and, you know, all like a lot of really great people there, uh, you know, a lot of which I think are, are still friends today. Got Noah, Will, um, yeah, Simon, uh, yeah, it's a crew. <laughs> yeah, and I remember every week, I mean, to, to kind of paint the picture, Chiang Mai in 2013 didn't have that many digital nomads. Like The term wasn't even popular. Like We called ourselves like location-independent entrepreneurs, which would never stick because it's too long. And a couple of the guys, they were living in a house that they rented here in Neiman, so it's super convenient for everyone. Every Friday from like, I don't know, 9 a.m. to noon or something, we would show up their house cleaner would cook omelets, crack open coconuts, and I think they had avocado. You know, I think the avocados were their private stash, but I would, I would always eat some. Yeah, I think uh, and and fruit, if and I fruit, right. yeah, <laughs> and coffee too, and coffee, bulletproof and coffee. We think we would just chip in like a couple hundred baht, maybe a hundred, four yeah. bucks, five bucks, or something, and we just you know it was it was just like a nice get together. So it ended up not costing them anything because, you know, people chipping money. I don't, I'm pretty sure they didn't make any money from it, but it was just like easy way to gather. And I wish more people would have continued that because really all it takes is, you know, you having a house in a central location and just opening the doors saying, Hey, every Friday at 10 AM, let's meet here. Yeah. And I think that's a, a such a good example of it really just like, you know, fit in timing of something that, 
you know, us, those of us that were here really wanted to connect and wanted an opportunity to come hang out, chat, meet the new people. And it was, you know, so easy and also impactful for the guys that had, it was like a pretty big house. They had a, a good size, you know, living room, living area, whatever. And like, they didn't really have to do much to organize, just, you know, let people know. And there was, I mean, I remember there being what, like, you know, 15, 20, 25 people showing up there some weeks and, uh, yeah. So. And it was all word of mouth and it was open door policy where as long as you like were a friend of a friend and you knew about it, you just walked in. There's no like RSVPing. It wasn't even posted on the internet anywhere. Yeah. Very, uh, inclusive. And, uh, yeah. Good, good times. And, yeah. and, and here we are, Chiang Mai now wrapping up, uh, from paleo power breakfast to, to what? Nomad summit number 10. <laughs> no, this is number eight, I think. But yeah, number six in Chiang Mai, it's been six years, which is pretty crazy. Uh. And, I want, yeah, I definitely want to get into your talk uh, about the Nomad Summit and kind of everything that you've been through since. But I remember the start of the podcast actually started because one guy, I think it was Terry Lynn, mm. he had a podcast called Build My Online Store. And at the time, I had a dropshipping store that had just started taking off and making money. And he was like, oh, that's really interesting. Because I think I was one of the first successful dropshippers that he had met. So he was like, hey, let's do a podcast together. And I said, okay, cool. Like, do we need to go to a studio or how does this work? And he's like, no, I have all my gear here in my backpack. Let's go upstairs and find a quiet spot. So Tara and I go up to one of the empty bedrooms and start recording a podcast. And one of these similar mics that we have now, which is an Audio-Technica mic. And I thought, wow, that was really easy. Like, I really thought that we would have to... Oh, no, no, it was a, it was a Blue Yeti at the time, which is kind of popular mic. But... Either way, I was like, this is really easy. Like, I can do this. And I remember, yeah, podcasts were just starting off and they were hot at the time. And I remember just going downstairs and saying, hey, guys, I'm going to start a podcast. And even Terry, who I had asked a couple questions to, like, you know, what mic do you use? What editing software already host it? He didn't actually believe I was going to do it because I'm sure a lot of people have asked him the same thing and just never did it. And everybody was shocked by the, like the next week when I saw everyone at the Paleo Breakfast. Not only did I have the cover art done i had the website up and i think i had recorded two episodes already and i think that was kind of like the the mentality i was in like that hustle mentality yeah, dude. i think it's like a, a amazing example and inspiration of like don't need to overcomplicate things and you know just ship and get it out there and like at the time you know you certainly could have fussed and tried to find better equipment or better cover art or you know blah 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 blah, blah. but i'm sure when you started it you know, maybe had some ideas of what you were getting into, but you clearly didn't need to have it all figured out. And, you know, fast forward, you know, hundreds of episodes later and now these nomad summits. And I mean, it's really, uh, I mean, certainly seems like it's uh, been a really positive experience and platform to you t for you to, I mean, yeah, a lot of different opportunities and, and, you know, help a lot of people. Yeah. And it's been fun. And I, th I think that it's cool seeing all of us grow together because even though we've all went on separate paths, like business-wise, life-wise, or even just location-wise, like you were, you basically moved to Vietnam and lived there for how long? Uh, it was about four years. Vietnam was uh, was home. Yeah. And, and it was funny because it was a big splinter of the Chiang Mai crowd where I think we all went to Vietnam for one burning season, which was back then started in like March. So now it's starting earlier. But... Some of us just didn't like it and moved moved back or moved to other places. And then some of you guys were just like, 
Vietnam is the bell, the bomb. I'm, I'm staying here. Yeah, well, it's interesting how it happened. Where I think like Chiang Mai was kind of the the original hub, and then and then it shifted. Yeah, like late 2013, early 2014, and then Vietnam was just fucking popping. And uh, yeah, I mean, huge scene, and and that you know really exciting place to be for you know the next following years, and and then you know fast forward a couple years after that, and like. You know, the Vietnam scene has definitely died down and a lot of those, you know, people or that would have been going to Saigon the last few years have now been back to Chiang Mai. And so, yeah, I guess everything uh, has its seasons. Why do you think it changed? Um, Like, why did you leave Saigon? Yeah, for for me, I left Saigon. So this was I kind of like unplugged or, you know, moved, uh, moved my base from Saigon a little over two years ago or maybe two and a half years ago now. And and yeah, like I was there, it was home base for four years. And I mean, was amazing for my life. So much growth personally, professionally, like I really grew up in that city and, and yeah, like after when I was, when I was like leaving or trying to find the, the next place, was sort of, I mean, some of the thinking was around like what got you to where you are isn't going to get you to where you want to go next. And like, I have so much love for Saigon and the community there. And, and it was, and, and is amazing for, for my life. But, but yeah, I think like I, I had realized, uh, you know, so much of like, I, I had already realized so much growth and progress and, you know, learning everything from that city and, uh, was, looking to find, you know, new growth and new opportunities. And, and, uh, so, so yeah, went, went off back out to explore. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So what actually made you like Saigon in the first place? Like what, what did you like about Saigon more than you did Chiang Mai or is it just the community? Yeah. So, uh, interesting question. And it's interesting as I kind of now compare and contrast, I remember at the time when I was living in Saigon and then now uh, the last few winters have been spending more time in, in Chiang Mai. And uh, and yeah, so, I mean, Vietnam at the time, it was really the, I mean, for me at least, and I think a lot of the people was the perfect combination of really everything of what I wanted at that point in my life. Uh, the community was a huge part. Um, you know, people there to, to learn from, peers, you know, peers, people in front of you, people behind you, just like really amazing and, and supportive community. Uh, and like, I guess along with that, everyone, like everyone hung out a lot. And so there was just stuff to do, you know, drinks, meeting up after work, going out on the weekends, um, or just like, you know, co-working in cafes. And then also like the lifestyle was fun. Uh, you know, not very expensive. Like everyone was living in, if you remember like the 18A area. So everyone was living within, or most people were within, you know, all off of this one street. So you really had and felt this like really awesome sense of community there running into people, you know, at smoothies and breakfast and, and yeah. And so, uh, I guess the community, big part lifestyle is good. Lots of cafes to work from cheap, could get nice meals. Also, uh, you know, live really well on a budget. Uh, and it was good also for partying. <laughs> like at that time, uh, I was much more into partying than at least I am now. And Saigon's fun. It had a lot of these rooftop bars. And, and then I guess uh, the the last part of Saigon and, and what's still uh, still something that, that I notice whenever I go back is just the the city has this electricity. Like Vietnam and Saigon especially is is developing so fast. And, you know, when you're there, you'll be, 
you know, on a street at a cafe and you'll come back a week later and there'll be, you know, not only is the shop closed down, there's two new ones open, opening up and a new high rise building that's coming in. And just like the, the rate of development is going so fast that you, you can't help but be swept up in it. And so the combination of the energy, the community, the lifestyle was, was really just the, the, the perfect uh, recipe for, I think, you know, me and a lot of the other people there of just, you know, catalyst for personal professional growth and yeah yeah i could definitely see why you liked it and when i first went i really liked my original plan was to stay for two months and i had a you know little little studio apartment 250 bucks a month in that d1 district one area right next to juicy smoothies right behind it and i liked it you know and there was little things i liked about it like you would leave your laundry, even if it was just like one shirt in the basket, and then you'd get home and that one shirt would be washed, folded, and put on your bed. Like, we used to call them like Vietnamese elves or something, like magical elves that did you laundry seven days a week. It was crazy. That is nice getting the, the serviced and the laundry done every day. Nice, uh, nice benefit of an apartment that you're paying $250 a month for, especially. Yeah. <laughs> and the funniest thing is they didn't even mention that when I rented the apartment. They didn't say like laundry's included. I think in Vietnam it just it just assumed that laundry's included or something. And the yeah, the area was super easy. Um I had joined a really cool gym with Anton that had a sauna, an ice bath, and the gym was really nice. But it was also really expensive. I remember that gym being like eighty or ninety bucks a month for the like day rate where you can only go between like nine and 11 or something. I think I, think I remember when that gym was, was opening and a lot of people were kind of getting, yeah, uh, certainly I think that was like the first like super nice high end or uh, most convenient high end gym that was opening. But, but that's also one thing that I think is, is really cool about Saigon is that it has such a, like there's such contrast there. So you can have the expensive gym with a sauna and ice bath and, you know, on a, you know, in a high rise building and these views, then you can also, you know, around the corner, get like the super local gym with, you know, there's one, I don't know if you remember where, uh, near 18 a, we called it a prison gym. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> with like, no, you know, I think it was maybe, maybe a dollar to get, to get in each time. Yeah. And, and there's also prison foot, yeah. <laughs> which was like a dollar as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the thing with Saigon. It's like, you have these, these contrasts, you can get the, you know, around one corner, super high end, you know, cuisine or, you know, gym or facilities. And then, you know, around the other corner is, you know, super local uh, and yeah, you know, really, really cheap. And and it's cool to be able to have like both of those, I think, kind of contributes to its like charm and, and energy. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I remember it was fun having that, was it a line group? I don't remember what app we used. I think, uh, no, no, maybe it's group me. I don't know. It's gone yeah. now. I think, right? Yeah, I mean, it was groovy. Yeah. I think it's dead. But like, the biggest complaint about Saigon was there was no. Com it was really hard to be in a community, except if you happen to already know some people in the community, then you'd be in this like private group me chat. Every morning, we'd wake up and check, turn on our phone, and somebody, whoever woke up the earliest that day, would say, "Today's you know coffee shop is you know." Um, I don't remember the names of them now. Yeah, it was like ID Cafe. 
There's one French sounding uh, one. Lucine, yeah. Lucine, or like, and there's two Lucines, but like Lucine 2 or uh-huh. something. Lucine on whatever street. And just randomly, someone would just choose one and say, I'm working from here today. And then like five or 10 people would show up. And every day it was a different cafe. The cafes never minded if we were there for four hours or six hours. It was just like a nice experience, I think. Yeah, it really was. And, and it's interesting how, how you said that. And it's true that it's like if you were, you know, basically in the group chat, uh, stuff going on all the time, if you wanted to, you know, meet and co-work at the cafe or hang out after or get a smoothie. It was just like, you know, plugged in. Um, but then if you, you know, if you weren't in that group and it wasn't, I mean, it was a very inclusive. It's just if you like weren't aware of it or, you know, hadn't met anybody in this. Uh, and, and yeah, and I think that was a big thing. I remember a lot of people at that time just like kind of coming through Saigon and, you know, a friend of a friend or this would, would, you know, come to visit and, you know, people would just, they, they'd love it. And I mean, it's, it was great. Like you'd come and it was, you'd get kind of plugged into this, you know, into this scene and there's just stuff going on and people were doing stuff and people were just like, people were just excited. It was a, yeah, it was a, a fun time. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, and the only reason why I left, and I actually left pre- prematurely. I was going to stay for two months. And after, I think after three weeks, I just could not stand it anymore. I went back to Chiang Mai. It was the noise. And it wasn't just the noise of like being outside and hearing first off Vietnamese techno at like 7 a.m. Full blast every time we walked by a like a shop. But also like the motorbikes noise that never stops and the ho- constant honking. But it was just like a combination of everything where I wouldn't really notice it until I get got home and laid down. But my ears would be ringing just from the noise the whole day. And and even on the like Sunday pool parties, which was supposed to be like a relaxing day, they would blast in music the whole time. And I just remember for three weeks, I just couldn't really relax. It was just always going. And some people loved it. Like Anton really loved it because he's from New York and he loves that energy, as you mentioned. But for me, I, I need to chill. And I just couldn't chill. Yeah, I, I totally I totally get that. And I think I think you're right. It's you know, that energy it you know, some people uh some people it really resonates with and is inspiring and energizing. Um and then other people it's just, you know, too much and overwhelming and, and also, you know, it can change. Like I remember you, you know, for me, um as well as my brother who was who was living in Saigon, uh, you know, at, at that time and you know, I used to like love the noise, love you know, I love that like you'd wake up and whether, you know, you'd leave your apartment at you know, six thirty AM, seven thirty, eight, nine, like didn't matter, but there was just you know, the streets were buzzing. And, you know, now coming back and it's just like, you know, I, I, maybe I'm more, I don't know, sensitive to it or just enjoy kind of chill and quiet more. But like, you know, being back now, it's like, yeah, uh, it's, you know, you can't really escape it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually what I noticed was even the people like Anton who really liked it, they all found their escape by renting really nice, big penthouses where they would just spend you know, most of the day in the penthouse, never leave it. Like they would order food or like they would have someone cook and they would just chill. And then, you know, when they would go out, they'd go out. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's important to, I guess you can't have that on all the time. And, and yeah, I think for, and now I know a lot of my friends that are still living there, there, a lot of them, they, they moved out of the city center and are living more in some of the, the new developments or high rises that are, you know, a little bit out. I mean, still pretty, still, you know, quite close, but, but not in the center center. And it's, you know, you get a little bit out into these other developments and it's, it's really a different, you know, a different world than in the city center where we were all living. 
Yeah, I can imagine. But I, I, you know, I'm kind of weird. I like being right in the city center and have everything at my fingertips. But I also like quietness, which is why I'm okay. I really love where I'm staying now because it's like right off of Neiman, but it's quiet. And even though it's a small place, it's just a studio apartment. I'm never here. Like I'm almost always out and it's okay because there's so many cafes and coffee shops like right on the street that I'm just not home very much. But I think if I was in Saigon, I would need a bigger place that was quiet and I could just like work from home. Yeah, it's, you know, very different city vibes for sure. And and, and, and that's something that's also I've noticed that as I've kind of spent more time in Chiang Mai the last few years and that I've kind of learned to also appreciate is is just like how convenient this place is. You know, just like living around Niman, everything's less than a 10 minute walk, um, you know, and then there's nature, it's quiet, like, you know, and for, for me, the last few years, as I've gotten even more into kind of like other like exercise or biking or, you know, nature activities, which is also super accessible in Chiang Mai, whereas in Saigon, you can't, can't really like go for a bike ride around the city is not going to be super pleasant, whereas here, you know, you you know, out of Niman, two minutes, there's like beautiful, uh, beautiful trails and roads and, and, you know, some, some really incredible, yeah. Like, you know, nature biking or hiking or whatever you want to be doing. Um, so yeah, it's just been also nice to be spending time yeah. here. I mean, I think that's what I love about Chiang Mai. Like yesterday I went for a hike up the monks trail and then on the way down went to the Chiang Mai Aquarium, which I've been in Chiang Mai for six years. I thought I found everything already. I thought I'd been to everything already. But it turns out there's so many cool things that I'm still discovering, like the aquarium. I didn't realize how nice it is. Like nobody I know has been there. And now I'm going to add it to my like 30 things to do in Chiang Mai list because it is one of the best aquariums I've been to anywhere in the world. Word. Well, I uh, also, well, first time I'm hearing about the aquarium. <laughs> uh, yeah, right? And like you've been here so many times as yeah. well. Sounds cool. Like a, I don't know, nice activity. <laughs> no, I mean, like, it's perfect for, like, a rainy day and you want to be, like, indoor Because it's all indoors and it's huge. You can spend, like, two hours in there. Or if it's, like, super hot out, it's, like, air-conditioned so you can just walk around in there. So, yeah, I think that's what I like about Chiang Mai. And I like Saigon and I see why some people like it. But I also think it really is, it really is for, like, the nightlife scene where... Like, everyone I know who stayed, it's because they love partying with hot Vietnamese girls and drinking for cheap. Yeah, I mean, that is, uh, you know, a big, one of the biggest differences probably is the, you know, the nightlife. And in Saigon, the nightlife, even since when we were first there, has still, like, really evolved and blossomed. And, like, there's all these, you know, all these more cool rooftop bars and, you know, fancy lounges. And, like, it's, it's, it's nice. Like, there's some really cool... Um, you know, speakeasies and lounge and just kind of everything that's opening up, which which is is cool and and uh, you know, but but also for me, like that stuff is less important to me now than it was, you know, a couple years ago when when I was living there for for me personally and uh and yeah, you know, if you if you like to go out and party, Saigon's an awesome place. Um, Chiang Mai, you know, much more quiet <laughs> yeah the bars here close at midnight which some people will hate it's deterrent but for me i love it i love the fact that everyone's in bed by midnight the music stops it's quiet and then people wake up early and just have like a normal day yeah yeah i guess the i'm, I'm much more on the wake up early uh, you know most days or preferably and so so yeah chiang mai is a nice place for so that probably the best way to describe it is saigon 
or Vietnam in general is kind of like the Medellin of Asia. Go there to party. Go there if you want hustle, bustle, big city. And then Chiang Mai is, you know, like the mountain town, kind of more chill. So what what brought you back here, actually? Um, I came back because I guess like uh, like knew a bunch of people that were going to be here. Or, you know, it was in the fall and... and... Um, a lot of people came here after the different events, or there are a bunch of fall events going on in Thailand that brought people here. And so that's kind of what, what pulled me back. And then also my, at the time, my brother and sister were living here. And so that, you know, made it easy to stay. And, and yeah, and like, as I spent more time here, I really developed just like a really great routine and schedule here. Like it's, you know, for me, as much as, you know, is important and how much I value freedom in my life and business. Like I really also crave routine, but like my own routine, I want to make the routine. <laughs> um, no, I, I know what you mean. I, I'm the exact same way. And I think this is something that is kind of under appreciated or utilized by nomads where we love the freedom, but that leads people to just bouncing around, stressing out about what they should do each day, being unproductive you know, not being in shape, but like you're like, what is your routine currently? Yeah. Well, so in, in Chiang Mai and, you know, a lot of what has kept me spending, you know, spending more time here the last few years is, I mean, so like, uh, health wise for me, I think Chiang Mai is the number one place that I've spent time. I mean, I'm super into yoga. They've got amazing yoga studios with great teachers and just like the overall level of, you know, of, of yoga, you know, practicer here is, is really high. And so that I noticed that too. And and not, it's not like the, it's not as famous as Bali yoga, but I think here it's actually better in a lot of ways. I, I think so too. I mean, there's just like in walking distance from my apartment, there's, you know, three or maybe four studios that like, you know, have classes going on every day that it's like good teachers, good level of, of, you know, other, uh, other, you know, practicer. And, and so, so yeah, uh, you know, have like a great yoga schedule here. And then also, like I was saying, I mean, in terms of the other health stuff, um, great biking, this awesome gym opened up very near to both of us now. Yeah. That, so like, we'll give him a shout out. Cause Nate and I both go to the same gym. We kind of don't want it to get too crowded, but at the same time, if we don't talk about it, maybe they'll go out of business. So playground fitness but it's really for if you want to stay for like three months or longer. Yeah, which I mean, great gym, clean, modern. Um, so yeah, convenient there. And then you know, also I have time for you know going on bike rides and and yeah. So I mean, more on the health stuff. Like get a lot of massages that are super cheap and abundant and like all like uh, I love the Thai massages, which yeah, I mean are amazing in Thailand. Go figure. And so, and yeah, with that, like healthy food and, and then also like, and with all those things, it's still like, I get, I have like enough work time as well. And so it's just like the things that I want to be doing like every day, um, exercise, productivity, um, you know, eat well, you know, meet some friends and just like able to do all the, you know, like when I look back at my, you know, look back at my days, like they're very generally like you know, quite full, but in a, in a good way, in a good way, in a low stress way. Yeah. Low stress. Like it's, you know, they're, they're filled, but filled with, you know, all activities that are important to me or I want to be doing. And, 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 and and yeah. And like it also, everything's so close that it's, it's so easy. It doesn't feel, you know, 
yeah, it's not stress or you're like cramming everything in. It's just when it takes you five minutes to get from, you know, one activity or one meeting or one cafe or one lunch to, you know, the next place. It's just like you can yeah. fit a lot in. And, and, and I definitely agree. I think here I end up doing a lot, but I end up being very stress-free. Like everything's so close, as you mentioned, everything's so easy to get to. And there's so many options, you know, you can be like, all right, do I want to take a taxi? Do I want to walk? Do I want to take a red truck? Don't like, you want to want a bicycle? Like there, you have four options to get everywhere. And no option takes more than 20 minutes. Yeah, I will say, and it is one of the nice things. Like, it is just, it's so low stress here. Um, it's just like the mountains or it's kind of the small town feel, which which is nice. Uh, that being said, I'll just share a quick uh, stressful experience that I had. This was uh, just about a week ago. So <clears throat> mentioned that I love biking and do biking. And uh, last week biked up Doisu Tap, which is really challenging, but also really which fun. Is a super steep mountain. Yeah, yeah. It takes like you know. So I had it was my my personal record biking up, which took me like an hour and fifteen minutes. And like I'm, I'm in, you know, I, I bike a decent amount. I'm in pretty good bike shape, and so this was the fastest that I've ever done it. And so I get to the top, feeling good, and you know, I turn around to start coming back down, and it's like it's it's steep. You know, it's an hour and a half up. Yeah. yeah. Can we talk about like, do you know like the elevation gain or anything altitude? <sighs> uh, I think it's maybe like fifteen hundred meter. Like it's it's a lot. Uh, it's a climb. Yeah. It's, a it's actually. <laughs> I didn't realize this that Duis Tep's actually one of the most famous kind of bike destinations for for i guess is it road biking yeah I, yeah it's I a lot of i think it. like yeah doi Tap and um what's the doi inthanon i think are like two of the most like they're like known in the biking community as just like epic challenging you know rides and they both and, just happen to be in Chiang yeah Mai. super you know both yeah really accessible so all right so yeah it's this huge ride up i turn around i'm about to come back down uh you know which is just like you know downhill for well i mean faster than you you come up but it's probably a solid 30 minutes or so you know just going down and you know um um i you know grab the brakes because it's you know pretty steep and like immediately realize that something isn't right like i'm i'm you know squeezing the brakes you know hard like i normally would and i'm not slowing down like i thought and you know and and at first i try to just like squeeze really 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 hard which helps like a little bit. I mean, I'm still I'm going down faster than I would otherwise or would want to be. And, you know, I'm squeezing these brakes and, you know, at first I'm thinking like, okay, well, like at first it's like, okay, well, I'll just got to like squeeze these things really hard, uh, you know, for the whole way down. And I mean, it's like, you know, it, it's painful. Like I can, you know, your, your wrists and your forearms. Wow, and yeah, yeah. Anyway, but so I get down like, you know, the first or kind of second turn and like, I'm still going faster than I want to be. And I'm squeezing these brakes as hard as I can. And I'm not slowing down like I, I should, or I'm comfortable with. And you know, then I start to honestly, you know, start to panic. I'm like, all right, well, am I gonna have to fucking jump off this bike? Like, this is not, safe like i'm not gonna be able to get down to the bottom and thankfully uh, i remembered was biking with a, a good friend of mine alec this was probably like last year in chiang mai but he's a big biker and he had told me you know in emergency emergency situations you like put your the the sole of your shoe like reach your foot back and use your shoe to slow to down, to the, slow down tire. the tire wow. yeah which okay. thankfully i remembered and was able to, you know, got my foot around to, you know, slow the tire down, which, you know, eventually got me able to stop. And then I 
you know, got off the bike and then I had to walk to find a freaking truck to, you know, get me down. And, and anyway, fortunately made it, made it out unscathed. My shoes were wrecked. Right. Like, oh, I can imagine yeah, that. The, the rubber. Cause it's a steep. Mountain. Yeah. It's like, and, and I thought like, as I'm, you know, first when I got my foot on the on the wheel, I was like, "Oh, am I just gonna like do this on the whole way down?" Oh, yeah. but, no. <laughs> but like, well, but then I, I like realized like because I could, I mean, the bike was it was slowing, which was good. But then like I actually went and like I pulled my foot out to check, and I could see that like, you know, it was cutting through all the sole and the rubber. Like the, the shoe wouldn't last. Like I mean, yeah. certainly yeah. not practical to do that the whole way down. So anyway, fortunately, I was able to get off, get out, you know, unscathed. But but yeah, was uh. Uh, unusually uh, stressful situation in a normally not so stressful place. Yeah, yeah um, I can imagine. But so, what kind of truck brought you down? Was it one of those red? Yeah, trucks? it was a red. So I, I, I like walked down to. It was like the the highest most um like viewpoint viewpoint area and when i was down there and also fortunately it was like getting dark and i'm walking down and then i'm like oh, all right okay. well i don't have like lights on this bike I, I need to get to the rest area so that i'm not just yeah. on the side of this freaking road but but yeah then there were these like red trucks that were coming down and i'm trying to you know wave at them to you know to pick me up and they're not stopping blah 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 then finally one of them like there was a red truck that was coming down and like i waved at it and it was like pulled over which i thought it like saw me and pulled over to see me it turned out that there were these Japanese tourists that were just like, you know, going to see the lookout point. Yeah, yeah. And I went there and like just tried to like beg the driver who didn't really understand me to, you know, go down. And I was like showing him the bike and the brakes and showing him my shoe. Yeah, and, yeah. and and fortunately these uh the the Japanese tourists, like they one of them spoke a little bit of English and and you know, they okayed me to put my bike into their truck to, you know, drive drive the way down. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. Uh, and what did they charge you for? Ah, uh, they uh, no charge. <laughs> See, this is what I love about Chiang Mai. That, like, how amazing is yeah. that? Like, yeah, I mean, worked out. Uh, could have been a lot worse on a lot of different, yeah, yeah. you know, on a lot of different uh, accounts. <laughs> yeah, but that's amazing. I'm glad you're safe. Yeah, thank you. I've always wondered when I would come down on like a motorcycle and I would see people on 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 like a road bike flying down, going like I don't know the. Do you know what the speed is going down? That you can get up to like forty. 40 kilometers an hour, 45. Yeah, like 30 miles an hour straight down. And I'm like, what are these? I was like, dude, this seems so dangerous. But I think it's that adrenaline. It's like a reward and adrenaline after that hard climb, right? So you're climbing up for an hour and a half. It's just pure torture. You get to the top. You take a rest. You have a fruit shake, (laughs) which I imagine, right? Cruise down. You just fly down. You have adrenaline pump in. You're like, oh, man. Which actually, I mean, uh, the ride down is nice, but... But also, and maybe it's just my bike, the brakes aren't as good as they should be, but like it, it wears on, I mean, going up, it wears on your legs, but then on the way down, like it's really, it's tough on your forearms. Um, and so it's not even like total cakewalk, you know, just cruise down because like you're, you know, you're breaking pretty intensely. Uh, but, but yeah, hope that yeah, any, uh, any listeners out there that, that are bikers, uh, hopefully can, you know, hopefully aren't in a situation where they need to use their freaking shoe to slow down the bike. But, but that's a good life-saving yeah, tip. Yeah. I never would have thought of that. I would have just like, because it's so fast you can't jump off. You still hurt yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, and you wreck your I think bike. That's the, like, the only other thing I was considering was like as it was coming around a, you know, like a curve of just, yeah, bailing. But I, I mean, that wouldn't have been a good option. <laughs> so uh, Yeah. And I, I guess it's good that you weren't like, like cleated in or like what do you call that like attached yeah. in yeah yeah i guess and like had shoes that 
I guess, had rubber that could rub off. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. Hey, guys, real quick, I wanted to tell you about this week's episode sponsor, Global Pass, the global co-working membership. So Global Pass was actually created by my friends at coworker.com, and it gives you frictionless access to more than 1,500 co-working spaces worldwide. Virtually anywhere you go, you have access to workspace through their app. You can participate in their private founder launch for just 50 bucks and get exclusive benefits for the first 500 users to join. Find out more at coworker.com slash pass. So let's kind of get back to your your story of how you kind of started this business. Like, what actually, what made you come and start this kind of nomad journey in the first place? Yeah, so I guess my my story started. I was in, um, I was backpacking in around Thailand after after uh, college. I taught English in Korea for a year, and then was backpacking in Thailand. It was up in Pai, you know, a couple hours north of here. And that's where I met the first digital nomad, uh, this guy Andrew who basically introduced me to the lifestyle that just really introduced me that this thing was possible that you you know internet marketing was a thing SEO was a thing that you could you know hire people all over the world to you know do whatever and and yeah that you could do this all from your computer and while you're traveling and you know after I met him this like really like it was just like clear to me that that's what I, I wanted to do and and so, uh, you know, got back home and kind of got, got to work. And the first idea was building like lead gen websites that I successfully built some lead gen websites. Like these are cosmetic surgery websites for like cosmetic surgery, you know, cosmetic surgery, Atlanta, Chicago, Miami, Baton Rouge, whatever. And so like I succeeded in building these sites and learning how to, you know, hire people and kind of kind of project managed building websites, uh, unfortunately did not succeed in making any money from them. <laughs> and so... Was it just not getting enough traffic or what was happening? Yeah, I mean, it, it made a little traffic, like it got a little traffic. Um, I think p- part of it was the SEO landscape at that time. So this was like 20, end of 2011 uh, into 2012. The SEO landscape was really changing a lot. I think that was, you know, some of the first Panda and Penguin updates. And like, it was kind of going from, you know, super spammy working to not working and Google introduced like Google places. And, you know, I didn't, I mean, these were like, I didn't know what I was doing (laughs) and, you know, but built these websites, but like, I didn't know how to do anything really. And, and yeah, like they, you know, were, they ranked for some stuff, but the idea was to, you know, build a lead list or sell the leads and generated a couple leads, but never sold them. And anyway, yeah, didn't end up making any money, but did get, valuable skills in terms of like learning how to hire and learning how to project manage and learning about SEO and learning about websites. And so, uh, and just to give everyone an idea of, of what a lead gen website is, it'd be something like building like best Botox, Boston.com, having a bunch of articles about, you know, Botox at the keyword Boston, or maybe the zip codes or whatever the city is. And then a contact us form. So like book an appointment. And then if somebody filled that out, then you would try to sell that lead who's someone interested in Botox in Boston to a local business that does that provides it, yeah, right? Ex- ex- exactly. And so, yeah, I was trying to do that or was, yeah, was trying to with um, cosmetic surgery. And so we'd build these websites, like little information hubs around local cities with 
you know, different articles about the different treatments and, and then, yeah, then like basically hired a bunch of, you know, spammy SEOers to spam it with backlinks, which previously worked, but wasn't the right long-term strategy. And anyway, so, but, but like, so, so that didn't work how I thought or planned or wanted and ended up, you know, maybe a couple months later, six months later was running out of money and was basically faced with the choice of either move back home and keep on trying or to get a job. And, you know, I got advice from some other, I guess, like the the few other entrepreneurs that I knew at the time or that um, that I could connect with that, you know, they just kind of said that, you know, at that time I was, I don't know, 23, maybe 24 and didn't really have much to lose. Like worst case, I moved back home, kept trying. And then if it didn't work out, could get a job six months later uh, versus, yeah, like, I don't know. It, it, it made sense for me to, you know, keep trying. And I knew that's really what I wanted. And, and so, yeah, so I did. And then I remember, so moved back home and it was around then that I found the Tropical MBA podcast at the time was Lifestyle Business Podcast. And you know, that was, you know, these guys, Dan and Ian, talking a lot about their, you know, online business, location-independent business, digital nomad business, you know, whatever, a lot of, like, marketing stuff that they were doing. And, you know, they were living in, in Saigon at the time. And, you know, I remember listening to that podcast, like, I was, you know, living at home and uh, home. My parents live in Minneapolis. So, like, I remember going to the gym, you know, on, like, you know, Saturdays or weekends, whatever. It's, you know, freaking zero degrees outside and... You know, I'm just like, you know, crushing episodes of, you know, the their podcast and just like, honestly, just like, you know, motivated and, you know, learning and just, you know, excited about like the direction that I was going in. And so, you know, from them, so for that podcast and they, you know, they have the community, the DC, which is their membership group for online business, location independent, whatever that, you know, they also were, were talking about on the, you know, on the podcast and they had their big annual event in Bangkok in the fall. And so that was what I, what first kind of brought me then back out to Asia was going to that event in Bangkok. And then from there, you know, followed that to Chiang Mai and was here for a bit. And then from there kind of followed the community to Saigon, which is what got me there. And, and then uh, when did you actually get into your like your Amazon business? Yeah, so that was like for me the first couple years, maybe you know one two years uh being out in Asia, I I mean I was doing okay, like I was making, you know, a couple grand a month freelancing basically. And but, what were you doing for freelancing? Uh it's kind of a mix of stuff like had a couple Amazon or um uh, Google AdWords consulting clients where I manage their AdWords campaigns, you know, built some uh, niche, you know, websites that I had this other partner that at different points did okay, uh, project managed some, you know, building websites that, you know, like all, all kind of, you know, hacked together, made enough income to live pretty comfortably and well in, you know, Chiang Mai and Saigon, but but it wasn't, I didn't really see the long-term you know, vision or plan or like growth with a business like that. And, and honestly, you know, coming to Chiang Mai, you know, meeting guys like you at the time that, you know, your dropship stores were like really taken off. And, you know, a lot of the other community was a lot further, further ahead than me at that point, which, you know, was, was honestly, it was inspiring to see, you know, you and the other guys here that were, you know, that were doing it, like building businesses that, you know, really, which, which it was, you know, seeing, you know, getting exposed to that, that gave me the, I mean, it just, it made it, it, it showed me what I wanted to be doing. 
and 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 yeah, then you know, I, and also got the support from everyone that you know everyone was so helpful and oh i'll show you what i'm doing or here's this model and you can do it and you know so that's how i ended up getting into amazon was there were you know friends in in chiang mai actually and this was at at um you were there at uh at anton's dropship lifestyle i think it was the first one i think in yeah the first one in um in chiang mai that he uh that he hosted and one of the speakers was was another friend of mine who was doing really well with amazon and he kind of shared what was working and what he was doing and and then after that i was just kind of like all right i like i'm gonna give that a go and so i did and you know fast forward i mean it, it the process it takes a long time you got to find a product you got to source it then you got to manufacture it and then you got to ship it it's just like you know time on time just kind of stacks up but you know move forward and and that was the business it was my second product that i launched like you know maybe uh the the spring summer of the following year that really started to take off and that's when i knew that like this is like that was going to be my thing for at least, you know, that period and double down and launch more products and launch more products. And, and yeah. So what I really liked about Anton and, and that first conference uh, in Chiang Mai was, I think he did it again in Krabby the year after, uh, was that even though he had his course on kind of high ticket drop shipping, he would like one of the, like literally one of the speakers he had come was talking about Amazon, which was a whole different business model. And, but I think Anton just like, this is what's working. This like, you know, if you want to pivot and move to Amazon, like I want you to know what's currently working. If you want to stay with dropshipping, this also works. Like, you know, stick with this path. But like he was he's really the type that just wants people to have all the info, yeah. which is cool. Yeah, definitely. And like, yeah, a lot of great speakers on, you know, dropshipping relevant stuff, but also other stuff at yeah, the the first two events that I attended. Um yeah, which which is often awesome. Uh shout out to Anton, by the way. Yeah, and the funny thing is, I remember at that time when Amazon started getting big, I was also thinking like, should I pivot or not? You know, my stores, my shopping stores are doing pretty good. I think I was making you know anywhere between like two and five k a month in profit from them. And at the time, I I don't think I knew anyone who was making much more from from Amazon or maybe at the time like they weren't even making as much. But I was like, I see potential in this. I see like their the conversion rates are so high. Like at the dropshipping store, like you're aiming to get one or two percent conversion rates. With the Amazon store, like you're getting what, 30 20, 30 percent potentially. Yeah. And it's insane. It's just because people go on Amazon to buy stuff and like, you know, people would just be like, Oh, I either have Prime or I'm trying to hit the twenty five dollar, thirty five dollar minimum, so I'm just gonna buy as much crap as I can. And I just like I thought I was like, man, there's definitely potential here. And the only reason why I didn't switch was because I was like, I was like, you know, do I want to rely 100% on Amazon? Because if they decided, you know, to change their mind or anything, there's nothing I can do about it. And I think the people that did go Amazon route, they ended up, the gamble paid off. But that was always in the back of my head thinking, do I want to be 100% reliant on this one platform? Yeah, well, like, I mean, uh, over the years with my experience and ups and downs and, you know, certainly have uh, had success with it. But, like, at the same time, am more aware than ever of the pluses and minuses. And, like, you know, it was a great opportunity. It did work out well for me. But, like... I know a lot of people that it didn't work out and it can be really expensive and is only getting, you know, more challenging and competitive. And that's not to say that, you know, certainly still possible to have success, but 
it's uh i mean like everything like it's 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 hard and and you know it's not you don't want to approach it with the mentality of like you know get rich quick which you know and with amazon especially like a big draw for for me was you know oh these like you know automated and and you know all these like high revenue numbers but there's a big difference between doing you know high revenue numbers and putting money into your pocket so versus you know your dropship stores that maybe was making you you know whatever a couple grand 5k you know profit at the end of the month that was going into your pocket you could live off yeah because yeah because we weren't reinvesting it right versus you know an fba business that you know yeah it's growing you know i remember when my business like really was taken off and sales in like a six month stretch went from like you know 5k a month to 100k a month you know and it was like 30% roughly whatever profit. And so you think like, oh, wow, like, you know, 100K a month in sales, like 30K profit, you know, like, you know, stacking cash. When in reality, it was all going back into the business, all going to back into growth, all going into more inventory, into new products. And and so, so so yeah, I mean, the, the opportunity, I think with the FBA, I mean, if you ride out the cash flow and stabilize, you can, you know, you can, um, you know, then you can, you know, cash flow it. Uh, or if you sell it, you know that's that's how you yeah. make your money. Yeah, and that's a really good point. I think a lot of people don't think about it is with a physical kind of inventory business, whether it's filled by Amazon or if you're shipping it yourself. If you want to grow, you got to buy more inventory. And even though you're making you know a big chunk of profit to continue that, you need to put all that back in. And if you can either sell the business or if you can end up kind of figuring out a way, we're like okay you know what, we don't need to grow anymore. We can just stabilize and then start start making money. And then it's very, very profitable. But during that growth, which may, might take a couple of years, if something happens or Amazon changes its mind or changes the policy or a competitor comes in, you could potentially have just ordered $30,000 worth of inventory and it's just sitting there now. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, um you know, it has its risks and its challenges and it's something that it doesn't, you know, as the, if the business is still growing, it the cash flow you know, treadmill doesn't stop. Like a, a friend of mine who uh, in, in three years grew his business to a million a month in sales. You know, wow. it did like 10 million plus trailing 12 months and, you know, uh, just say 25% profit margins. You think, okay, that's like, you know, two plus million going into his pocket when in reality, you know, the business was growing. So it was all getting reinvested. And, you know, that's what led him to list the business for sale because he's like, all right, well, like I'm making all this, you know, making all this revenue, this business is, you know, selling all this stuff, but you know, his, you know, he wasn't getting the kind of, you know, income that he, you know, thought or wanted. And I mean, he's looking at, and actually has an offer. I mean, it's in due diligence for, you know, close to an eight figure exit. So, hopefully you know will work out you know really well for him but but yeah but like as you know it's growing it is risky and it is expensive have you met anyone who are, or have heard like first hand stories about people who just ended up like losing it oh yeah totally i mean it's it's a lot more common i think than Maybe you'd realize because like the people you hear on podcasts, they're talking about, you know, the success that they had, you know, people aren't talking about the, you know, the time that their their listing got suspended for some BS reason. And then while it was down, new competitors launched. And this was right after you just placed a big inventory order. And now you're sitting on all this stuff and it's moving slow. And, you know, and like this stuff, it like it, it it's, uh you know, it's not uncommon. And it's interesting now getting into 
uh, services and consulting in the space that like I've, you know, get exposed and see a lot of other businesses and, you know, see people and, you know, work with businesses that like are doing great and crushing, but also, you know, see businesses that, you know, they, they, uh, have their sales projections and, you know, they order all this inventory and then, you know, whatever happens and projections underperform and now they're sitting on an extra whatever tens or even six figures of extra inventory that now messes up their cash flow for all this. And like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, it's less commonly talked about because most people don't, you know, the businesses that get, you know, kind of screwed over by Amazon or, or like really face some of these challenging times. Like they're not the ones going on and doing the podcast interviews, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely happened. Yeah. I've had a friend who was in the supplement niche and he had a competitor sabotage his brand. Basically the, this guy, he paid a bunch of people, you know, somewhere anonymously and said, just order, you know, these supplements and then just return it. That's it. All right. But so it didn't seem like that big of a deal to the individual. They're like, "Oh, I'm gonna get paid twenty bucks to to you know or ten bucks to order something, return it, get my money back. Great." But the reason why I ended up hurting my buddy is you can't like if someone like sends back supplements, you can't resell them because they might be tainted, and it just like screwed them for yeah. There's 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 thousands of dollars. Well, well, there's that and. Like if your listings get a return rate above a certain metric, like things can get flagged, your listing can get taken down. Like there's all this kind of stuff that, you know, definitely, you know, can happen. And like not to scare off people from, you know, getting into Amazon or if they're in Amazon, like it it can go really well. But it's also important to like be aware of the you know, challenges and risks associated with whatever you're doing. You don't want to go into things blindly optimistic. I mean, you know, a uh, healthy optimism is good, but you don't want to be blind to the risks that, you know, that that could happen to you and your business. And I think at some po- a certain point, it's good just to take some money off the table and just be like, all right, you know, it, I've been riding this roller coaster. It's growing. The money isn't really your money until it's in your bank, right? Absolutely. And it's stuff that I've, I mean, that I certainly did. And when I ended up selling my business a couple of years ago, was like very much that. I was like, all right, well, you know, it, it was paying me okay income, but like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just like stacking money up in my yeah, bank like, account. Like, how much were you paying yourself? Uh, maybe like 5k a month. I mean, I would kind of expense stuff on the business. Um, so my expenses were kind of low. I mean, I was living, I mean, I didn't have high, that high expenses, but, but yeah, like maybe, you know, 5k a month or, or something. And, and then how much was the, like how much revenue was the business? Oh, we doing? were doing like six figures a month. Wow. Um, nice. Okay. So, I mean, sort of like, I mean, it was, it was cool, but again, like sexy revenue numbers is not the same as like cash in your pocket. Yeah. And so, and then when you sold the business, you had I did have cash in my pocket, yeah. Which like, like how did like yeah like can you talk about the the sale? How many like was it an earnout or was it a big lump so, sum? So mine was uh it was you know it was unexpected. This wasn't like we didn't go to a broker. We basically we you know had an offer from a, a you know potentially interested buyer, and and, and how know, did that buyer find you? Was it like a mutual friend? So this or? was through my business partner, and so also uh, I kind of took chips off the table twice. So like first when my business was first started taking off, you know, we hit our first six figure month in sales and I was like looking at my bank account and there was like $5,000 in it. It's kind of like, all right, and, well, like, yeah. And you're like, how's this possible? We just made a hundred thousand dollars with the sales this month, but I have five grand. Yeah, in my, well, my well, well it's kind of like, you know, what am I, 
Like, what am I in this for? Am I in this to, you know, sell a million dollars worth of stuff on Amazon? Or am I in this to, like, give myself financial security and income and, like, cash? And so, so yeah, so that, so after my business kind of had that first inflection point, um, teamed up with a investor partner, a friend of mine, Travis, who had recently completed a big exit of his own. So he was looking to get involved with other stuff. And so that was the first thing that like, you know, got me to that first level of financial, you know, from a couple, you know, more than a couple thousand dollars in my bank account. And so, so I had that. So he gave you like a chunk of cash and and became like a 50, 50 partner. So he gave me a chunk of cash and then became a 49% partner in the business. Can I ask how much he gave you? Yeah. Uh, so the business it was valued at the time, I think I, I ended up getting between, I think it was like 200K plus inventory. Oh, nice. So I ended up getting That's like, yeah, it was like, I don't know, between 200 and 250 like cash, wow, which, okay. you know, was quite different than the five grand that I had in my bank account, yeah. you know, yeah. before. So was the business worth then like 400 grand based on your projections? Yeah. Or? I mean, I think that was at like around like a two X, you know? So, I mean, if it was valued at like 400 grand, it was doing, so what is that? Like 18 K. I mean, if it was a two X multiple, so 400 grand at a two X multiple would be 200 grand a year, which would be like 16 K profit. Um, and so, yeah, I think like, you know, it was on, the, I guess that was our last six months or, you know, whatever at that time. And so and I think that was a smart move because even though potentially you could have had, you know, kept it all for yourself and, you know, potentially made more money at the same time, going from five grand in the, in the bank, which is, you know, one month's worth of expenses, right. Or two months worth of expenses to having the stability and, you know, of like, like, how did that feel? Like for the, like, I'm assuming that was the first time in your life you had that yeah. much money in your, it, it, in your it bank. It was life changing and like, you know, don't regret it, you know, at all. And like, I can say like at the time I had, you know, I had different, uh, different people giving me different advice and, you know, on one hand they're like, oh, well, like you've been doing this and you're in a good direction and you don't need, you know, this. And, you know, if you like hold out, you're going to, you know, make more later Then on the other hand, we're like, dude, like that's a lot of money that's going to really change your situation. And like, and also, you know, Travis, my you know partner investor is like really successful guy, smart guy, good guy. And so all that went into my thinking of like, all right, well I can keep doing this alone and kind of roll the dice on it more or like, you know, take some chips off the table, partner up with someone who I knew had good success. And I thought, I thought would, you know, broadly speaking, you know, add value to the business and the equation. And then to get back to your original question of how we found the buyer, it was through Travis. It was the, the, this buyer had bought businesses from Travis in the past. And so that's how we were connected to him was through my partner. And so, uh, so, you know, certainly I think he, you know, came and and added a lot of value to, you know, that business, that situation, you know, even just from, that connection to the, to the buyer. And so, so, so yeah. So then, uh, you know, had the buyer thankfully had built a great team that had the business, like basically on top of its shit to be able that we could be sold, like had our finances in order, had like, you know, could show the buyer the stuff that he needed to see in order to move forward with the acquisition. Uh, and then, and then, yeah, then got that, you know, uh, chunk of money. And so, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, the, between the two of them totally changed my financial situation and like, 
yeah. Uh, also shifted a lot of my mindset like after that around like income generating things. Cause then, you know, it's like, all right, I have this cash, but I don't have income. Like, all right, well, like how do I get income? And like, that's a big reason why I didn't jump back into another FBA business. Cause like I wanted to protect my cash and, and, you know, have it go up instead of having to reinvest it all again. So what did you do that 200 K? Did you invest it somewhere? Uh, I, well, after sold the business, the first thing, as the timing would have it, was that was right when crypto was starting to get crazy a couple years ago. And so uh, a big chunk ended up going into crypto, which was a big learning experience. <laughs> like, overall, I came out up, um, although I also was up and down literally millions, wow. <laughs> or like wow. a million plus up and then also down. Wow. <laughs> and so... So how much? Okay, so Rose, how much did you sell the business for? Uh, the business was sold for nine hundred fifty k, and then you got about half of half that. Half of that, yeah. So then you took, so you had like four hundred something k plus the two hundred k you had before. Was that invested already, or no, did that, you spend that I was just sitting on, just in a bank account making zero percent. <laughs> yeah. Like wow, I didn't, I didn't okay, know anything? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then how much crypto did you buy? <laughs> I bought like uh, I think in that spring, probably put like low six figures into wow. crypto. So you put over hundred grand which, which, into like Bitcoin or Ether yeah, or Bitcoin, like... Ethereum, and then got into all the ICO stuff over the summer yeah. and like saw that say hundred K turn into like I think at my peak it was like one point six million. And you were like balling crypto billionaire. Well, exactly. The plan, I mean it's yeah. you know, funny to think back on. The plan was I was gonna wait till I had my portfolio got to five million. Wow. I was gonna take out two mil, invest uh -huh. in real estate and be done. Yeah. Okay. Uh, didn't end up working out that way. <laughs> yeah, like at the high point, what was it worth? I think it I mean like I think just under two, like at its peak. Uh, or something around two or like under two, of course, you know, did not. And actually I remember talking to um, Sam Marks at the time, uh. just kind of as that stuff was happening. And he, you know, one of the most experienced and I think like level headed investors that at least I, I, I know. And, you know, he was really, I was talking to a lot of people at the time and he was really like a voice of reason of like, Take you know, take money out, you know, da 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 da, and like I of course and and you didn't I didn't listen, <laughs> um, oh, no. you know, and I mean it's it's crazy. I mean it, you know can look back on it as a big learning experience, but like it's I mean like going through that, I mean mentally wrapped up, like it's it's yeah. a cra it was a crazy thing to be a part of, and anyway, so wrote it up, didn't sell out, you know, wrote it down. Um, I did cash out most of my crypto, you know, fortunately it was still like, I still ended up positive, but like watch the portfolio shrink by more, you know, more than a million dollars. Wow. But so okay. that also is like, you know, a, a lesson then that kind of had me, you know, reinforced in me, like the value of cash flow versus, you know, paper wealth. And like, I remember, you know, looking at my portfolio, it's like, oh, like, you know, I have, you know, a million dollars or $1.5 million. The reality, I had nothing. And like then talking to more, you know, experienced investors like Sam, you know, chatting with him at Nomad Summit. And he was telling me about one of the businesses that he invested in that's like, you know, doing really well. But, you know, the way that he articulated it is still like, you know, paper profits. And like, it, it, it's, you know, I, I mean, that business that he was talking, you know, talking about, I think it's a good chance that that's going to continue to do well and all these kind of things. But like, you can't count that as don't count your chickens before they hatch. Exactly. Right? Like as I, 
I mean, yeah, wish I would have uh, listened more to that advice at the time. But but yeah, but then, you know, coming out of that, I mean, thankful that at least I didn't end up losing money like I know a lot of people did. And and yeah, like if anything, that like just cemented in me even more like the direction that I want to be going in now in in terms of pursuing things that are long term and like, you know, generating income being a value exchange of like, you know, you perform service or product that generates value for customers and then, you know, in, in return, receive value in terms of payment, you know, versus crypto, which was all speculation. And there's, you know, no foundational at that time, you know, really anything. And, and yeah, so it was an expensive lesson to learn, but also I think, you know, uh, glad that I learned it then, as opposed to, you know, at a $10 million opportunity that I would, you know, freaking blow. <laughs> you know, I, I really admire th- that you're so open about it, because I think there's a lot of people who lost money in crypto and just never talk about it. Yeah, I mean, like, I, again, I was fortunate that I didn't, like, I ended up up, I mean, down if you look at the portfolio, but, like, fortunately, I didn't actually lose money on it. And, and yeah, I mean, like, what, like, what am I going to do? Be pissed about it? Like, you know, be sour. I mean, you don't really have much of a choice except to try to learn from it and, you know, don't make that mistake again moving forward. So, so what do you invest your money in now? So now I've invested in uh, a handful of other private businesses, which has overall been a good experience, also a big learning experience. Um, and, and yeah, like my kind of investment thesis for those businesses has been uh, generating cash flow. So like I've invested in four other businesses and each of them are, um, they're profitable and, you know, get distributions out of my share of owner. So I own anywhere from 25 to, you know, 50%. And that monthly like profit or you're sure of it is actually hitting your bank yeah. account. Yeah. So that's real money. Yeah. Too. We do, you yeah. know, quarterly okay. distributions. I mean, I've, some of them, there's an earnout period or this or that, but yeah, like I, you know, I give, you know, money and value in exchange for, uh, you know, equity, you know, equity ownership in the business and then, you know, do profit distributions for now. It's been quarterly. Uh, but yeah, you know, income generating, I mean, um, right now my, you know, goal and focus and also a lot of the stuff that, you know, you talked about at, at, you know, Nomad Summit at your, at your talk about, you know, it's like cash is king, cash flow is king, income exceeding expenses. And so like, I've been really leaning into that, you know, now and like that's what I want. Like I'm not even going for exits right now. I just want cash flow and like stacking cash flow and like more income. It was really interesting seeing kind of the hot topics every year turn and also just what people need or what they're interested in because a few years ago the Nomad Summit was really into like, you know, starting businesses. Like people just starting out like whether should they get into Amazon, should they get into dropshipping, should they get into Kindle publishing? Should, you know, what should they get into? And this year, a lot of the talks, probably half of them, were talking about either buying or selling businesses and then what to do with that money once you have an exit. So it's really cool seeing so many nomads that have either been coming to the Nomad Summit for multiple years or people who I've known in, you know, from Chiang Mai or you know this nomad journey for multiple years and seeing us kind of go through these cycles, right? Yeah, well, I think the the, you know, ourselves present company included at a very different place in our careers than we were at that paleo breakfast you know six seven years ago and so like interested in different things and i mean it's like amazing to see you know how you you're like investment savvy and like that was certainly not 
a part of you and your life, you know, when we first met and like, you know, me as well, like most of my, you know, my career has happened like since we first met <laughs> and, and, and yeah, like very different person now, um, personally, professionally, just like everything. And, and so it's cool to see, and like a lot of other people in the community, the ones that are, you know, coming back, uh, that also, you know, have grown and changed and, and like can, you know, bring more of that value and share more of that with like the, the newer. Yeah. People. I love it. So you guys listening, wherever you guys are at your journey, know that we all were there at a, at a point and you, you know, maybe you might be listening to this thinking, wow, that's exactly where I am right now. This is very like spot on with the timing. Or you might be thinking, this is a bit too early. I'm not even thinking about selling a business or investing on like just starting out. Save this episode because I think this is something that you'll come back to and be like, oh man, I'm glad I kind of heard the whole story before I made the same mistakes. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, I think good to, you know, good to like be exposed to some of these different, you know, perspectives or, or opinions. But also I can say, I mean, if this was me, you know, rewind to me listening to you know sam giving me very sound investment advice and like i just i mean i knew it was good advice but like some lessons you you know you can't really learn until you learn it yourself and so uh i mean hope that other people at least hope they can get the lesson of if you're biking and your brakes aren't working (laughs) you know save yourself with your shoe uh, the financial stuff too, of course, but like, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe we're just like headstrong. It's some like, it's, it's hard to take advice sometimes if you haven't like really felt the pain of the other side of it. And yeah, I guess at least, you know, if, if, if that's what ends up happening, hopefully, um, you know, hopefully the lesson is learned on a smaller stakes thing that you can then learn and keep growing and save yourself from, you know, a more expensive mistake. Later. Yeah, I definitely agree. And like for for me, I think the reason why I like sharing this stuff is because I wish this info would have been out there like when I was going through the same things. Because I, I feel like I would like to hope that if it was, maybe I would have listened. Maybe I wouldn't have. Maybe maybe you're right. Maybe I would have been like, nah man, I'm gonna be, you know, I'm gonna do hundred percent crypto. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a crypto billionaire, drive a Bugatti. It's close. But, <laughs> yeah. It was I mean that's close, yeah. But at the end of the day, like I think both of us Somewhat got lucky, but also somewhat, you know, I would say most of it was, was, was hard work. No, I mean, like, I think luck definitely plays a factor in everything, but like, it's not luck. There's different kinds of luck and it's not just dumb blind luck, you know, for us, like, you know, we were putting ourselves in situations and, you know, heart is like a combination of like hard work, persistence and that we happen to, you know, find the right opportunity place and time that then we were able to take advantage. And like, yeah. And I mean, like there's nothing wrong. I don't, I mean, I think, you know, luck or being in a right, you know, situation. Uh, I mean, I think that plays a role in a lot of people that, you know, catch a platform at the right time or, you know, this, this or that and finds this opportunity. But like they're, they're able to get lucky because they worked hard, are persistent, kept showing up. You know, it's, what is it? It's like, you know, 365 days to an overnight success or like a thousand yeah. days to an overnight success. Yeah, I definitely uh, agree. But to the people like they're going to ask right now, they're like, is it too late for Amazon? Is it too late for drop shipping? What, what is the new hot business? What do you say to them? I mean, I think you can have success with any model. It's about really, you know, choosing like being a well aware of the, you know, really the like pluses and minuses about what you're going to get into. Um, 
But then like, I mean, now I'm, you know, I'm a partner and, and also like have my own now into services and consulting. And like, I can't think of a more direct way to generate income for yourself than consulting or services. And yeah, I mean, that's also like, I don't know. Uh, I definitely resisted it kind of when I, I first started, I was doing consulting and services and then I got into e-commerce and, you know, now I'm, I'm, you know, back to the services because like it is going to be, you know, you're not going to get a sexy revenue numbers, but you, it's still, I mean, it's different challenges. You still can automate it via a team. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, cash flow. So like, I think that's the easiest, most direct way to like give yourself income to buy your freedom for whatever. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, at least then get some cash to then maybe reinvest in a drop shipping or Amazon play or. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I'm just thinking for the people who are just starting out, maybe they don't have the skills to be like, I, I don't want, you know, I don't want them to give anyone the false dream of like what you kind of, you know, this is what happens in Bali. I think is people are like, Oh, you don't have any skills. Yeah. You should be a life coach. <laughs> Like, do you think that someone should like take a class or a course or be an inter maybe intern for yeah, someone think, to develop those skills? Yeah, I mean, I think like the quickest way to get skills is going to be working for someone that you know has done or is doing what you want to be doing. Um, you know, give a shout out to Dynamite Jobs, which is a great hiring platform for you know location independent work. Uh, and and yeah, I mean, like when me personally, when I was getting my start, like I was hustling, hustling. Which is, uh, so I was hustling on Upwork, which is still, you know, a viable platform. And a lot of the businesses that I'm actually involved with now, like, still, like, get leads from Upwork. And and so, yeah, like, I, I'm not saying it's easy. Uh, you might have to start working for lower rates than you want. But, like, for me, like, that's what first allowed me to start getting some skills, really getting paid to learn. You know, you need to be able to, like, sell yourself. But, but yeah, would, like you know, bid on projects that I thought I could figure out and then would figure it out and, you know, kind of snowball upwards from there. And that learned, that led to some, you know, eventual business partnerships and different connections. And, and so, so yeah, like, and it's, it's definitely still possible today. Um, just also takes some yeah, muscle. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think at the end of the day, we sometimes forget that even when we started, everybody was already saying everything is too late and nothing's easy. Like, Five years ago, people were already saying Amazon's saturated. Amazon's too hard. People were saying dropshipping's too saturated. It's too hard. And, you know, five years later, we both had good exits and made a lot of money. So I think sometimes we forget, right? I think we always kind of think, like, it's too late for everything. But in reality, I guarantee you five years from now, someone's going to look back and be like, man, I could have been dropshipping, you know, commodities. You know, I didn't realize how easy it was to sell three tons of sugar to like to nestle because yeah, yeah. nobody else was doing it you know or like you know i can't believe how easy it was to build a, a brand on amazon and you know make a billion dollars from it i think these are things that in retrospect or kind of you know in in hindsight everything's 2020 but nobody can predict the future which is why you know yeah, like there's, there's endless having that right, now, like you know? can-do mindset, and and like not making excuses, and like it's easy to make excuses for anything, but that's not gonna get you anywhere. It's like, or you know, you just buck up, and you know, maybe it's not, it's gonna take longer and harder, but like you just keep at it, um, get yourself surrounded by the right people, and uh, 
you know, I think it'll, it'll, you know, push you forward. I love it. So I'm so happy that you came on the show. I'm glad that we reconnected. I really, really enjoyed your talk and your workshop at Nomad Summit. The feedback's been really, really good. And I think probably by the time you guys listen to this, some of the, the, the talks will be live already on the Nomad Summit YouTube channel. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the email list at nomadsummit.com as well as the Nomad Summit YouTube channel. You can see Nate's talk, you can see my talk, uh, all the keynotes for free uh, on the Nomad Summit YouTube channel. So hit that up. You can learn something. Uh, and Nate, if you want to get in yeah, touch with say, you, uh, really how can they fun find you? chat, fun uh, getting down memory lane a little bit, and as well as, uh, yeah, I think covered some some stuff that I think both of us wish we would have known, uh, you know, earlier in our in our careers and our journey. So, uh, hope those of you out there listening, hope you find it useful. Uh, anyone that is interested in connecting, uh, my current business is Sellerplex, Sellerplex.com. Uh, help other businesses to automate, unplug, scale, which is what I spoke about at Nomad Summit. Uh, so, if you're interested in that, uh, check out the 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 keynote I gave at Nomad Summit. Uh, go check us out online. Send us a message. Yeah, happy to connect. Any of you that are into uh, also yoga, traveling, check me out on Instagram, at Nate Ginsberg. And uh, yeah, say hi. Love connecting with good people. And uh, hope to catch you somewhere. Right. Thanks, Nate. Hope to catch you somewhere else in the world as well. And all of you guys listening, hope to guys see you guys at the next Nomad Summit. The next one is actually in Tbilisi, Georgia, the weekend of May 23rd. This one is going to have a limit to 220 tickets just because the room only fits that, that amount. So I think this one might be the first one to actually completely sell out. So make sure you get your tickets early if you want to go because prices are going to go up as we get closer. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. Take a screenshot, you know, PM them, DM them, whatever you want. And also, if you really love the podcast and you want more people to find it, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps so much for people you know, just looking around and saying like, what is a good uh, podcast to listen to? I don't think we have that many 2020 reviews yet. So please be the first or be the, you know, the first 10 because that's how we get to the top 10 list or top 50 list for people to find it. So go to iTunes. Uh, big shout out to everyone in 2019 that left reviews, including Rob from Seattle, Christopher, uh, Mark's, Authentic Sky, Apple, Unus Monk, all you guys said, you know, great things, five stars for the podcast. So definitely check that out. And uh, again, thank you to our sponsor for the week, Global Pass. Check them out if you want to check out more than 600 cities, uh, co-working spaces around the world. Just go to coworker.com slash pass. See you guys on the next episode. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.